much better. On the Empire Podcast this week, we're live in Glasgow at the Glasgow Film Festival! Oh, yeah! Hello, Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt, and I just said Glasgow a whole bunch of times, uh, and with good reason, because this week's Empire Podcast is coming to you from the Glasgow Film Theatre, GFT1, in fact, at the Glasgow Film Festival in Glasgow, Scotland! Glasgow! Glasgow! Or, as fans of World War said, might know it, Pittsburgh. It's all the same. Uh, we're very excited to be up here in Scotland, uh, although I must admit to being slightly annoyed. I spent much of last night trolling the city, asking people to deep fry my kebab. Uh, to no avail. Thankfully, the cops realized it was a genuine mistake, and they released me in time for the podcast. But I still can't help but be mad. Avengers Infinity War lied to us. You can't apparently deep fry kebab up here, or maybe that's just something they do in Edinburgh. Yeah. They do all kinds of weird, freaky shit in Edinburgh. Anyway, we're very excited to be a small part of the Glasgow Film Festival, standing shoulder to shoulder with our Celtic cousins. And I must stress Celtic, because if I say Celtic, it'll piss off half the people in the room. I don't want to keep you on side. That's another football reference there. Uh, anyway, let's welcome our two colleagues of such lethal cunning who've made the trek up to Glasgow with me. I know Northern Irish people may not exactly be flavor of the month around here since Brendan Rogers buggered off. <laughs> But you're going to have to put up with two of us. Will you please welcome our geek queen of Scots, Helen O'Hara! <laughs> it's a good start. It's a really good start. It's good. Nobody noticed. It's fine. I don't think anyone noticed. Style it out. It's, it's cool. All good. It's super cool. Uh, and last, but very much least, is a man whose hobby is secretly videotaping couples in cars. In England, it makes him look like a perfer, but every single Scottish person does it! Will you please welcome James Dyer! Hi, uh, how many people got that Groundskeeper Willie reference? Oh, okay, all right. Uh, I wasn't suggesting for a second that uh, every single Scottish person secretly videotapes couples in cars, but if you do, then meet me in the lay-by of the M8. <laughs> Afterwards, no, should Chris. be a lot of fun. Chris, no. uh, anyway, we don't have a lot of time because the closing gala of the Glasgow Film Festival is after this, and apparently that's more important, Chris. <laughs> Stop asking for more time. So let's just get on with the sure. movie news, shall we? Sure. What happened? The Oscars. What happened? The Oscars. Yeah. Should we? Yeah, we should talk about the Oscars. Some stuff happened. We what happened, should. Helen? Uh, well, the big winner, numerically speaking, was Bohemian Rhapsody with four. I think. That's a thing that happened. Um, <laughs> uh, Green Book also did uh, very, very well with uh, supporting actor, screenplay, and best picture. It is uh, absolutely inarguably the best picture of last year. There's no, there's no question about it. We have huge fans of Green Book here, I can see. <laughs> and Roma uh, took best uh, foreign film and best director. So, you know, some, something salvageable from the wreckage. It was a nice even spread, I thought. It was, it was, you know, it was very, an even spread, yes. Yeah. yes. Very diplomatic. You win one. Somewhat you diplomatic. Win one. You so may not deserve that, but you've won it anyway. Yeah, it was, it was sort of half really cheerable wins, like Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, or Regina King, with my personal film of the year, um, If Bill Street Could Talk, and then half really, what the hell are you thinking, prizes. And, <laughs> and so it was, it was a very disorienting experience, actually, this year, mm. I find. Did you watch it? 
I mean, no. Okay. So, no. <laughs> I didn't either. I slept through the whole thing. No. This man, Jimbo here, stayed up and watched the uh, the Oscars. Yeah. This, thank you. I mean, it's his job. Don't I mean, applaud that. Yeah, no, no, no. For the love of God. I am in many ways the hero you deserve. <laughs> that yeah. is slanderous. No, it, there were bits that were okay. Like Olivia Common's speech was very good. Great, great stuff. Yeah. The, the, the sexual tension between uh, Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga could solve the world energy crisis. And that's, <laughs> that's true. That was nice. But Chris, I, Chris Evans got up and helped uh, Regina King yes. on stage. That oh, was a moment. Cap, bless him. <laughs> yeah, and the, the, the opening bit, not, not a monologue, but yes, a bit. Yes, yes, my Rudolph from and, Tina Fey and, 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 and Amy Poehler. Yes, was that was really funny. Yeah, it was good. Like, they didn't need a, didn't need a host. I don't nah. think it, it suffered really from that. It just suffered from being wrong, really, consistently. So wrong. Throughout most of the evening, and that's unfortunate. A Bohemian but, Rhapsody? Uh, and I know Steven Spielberg didn't enjoy it, I can tell you that. So. Why is that? Roma. Right, He's so on a man, one-man crusade to burn a, Roma that's alive. That's a beautiful segue. But I, Into news. I, I don't think uh, that that is a particularly good summation of what Uncle Steve actually said. Come on then, Helen. Uncle so, Steve. Tell us, tell us what Uncle Stephen <laughs> Uncle wants. Steve. Um, basically, there's a question about Netflix's uh, sort of role at the Oscars and about what you need to do to qualify for the Oscars because Netflix spent a vast fortune <laughs> promoting Roma this year like yeah. you know estimates vary but 25 million dollars has been has been bandied around to to sort of sum up their Oscar campaign that's a huge amount of money with which a lot of smaller independent distributors cannot compete uh, and money does make a difference in terms of visibility in terms of your chances of winning these awards mm-hmm. basically the controversy now in the Oscars mm-hmm. is they're looking at rules about what qualifies for the best picture and particularly in terms of how many weeks theatrical exclusive distribution a film has to have what kind of a window it has to have before it can be shown on streaming services this is taken as a attack on netflix probably not without reason Mm -hmm. um but it is also something about the oscars kind of facing this kind of existential question of what qualifies as the kind of film that we reward. But do you think it's like Spielberg's going on this campaign against Netflix and meanwhile Mark Scorsese standing just here going, I'm right here, the Irishman has just <laughs> finished, fuck you. I, I don't think, I mean, again, I think we're slightly misrepresenting the, the language Surely that's not. being used by these men. But no, I think there, there are questions to be asked about what the Oscars is meant to do and what, how Hollywood as a, as a body responds yeah. to these streaming services. Because right now, Netflix is doing a significantly better job of distributing and promoting films made by non, let's face it, straight white male directors than everyone else. Mm. And films about sort of smaller subjects and mm-hmm. less obvious Oscar fare. They're doing a fantastic job with that. But they also have the muscle to basically smash everybody else. And that does tend to bode badly for the long term. Because so. what Steven Spielberg is saying is it's not that these films shouldn't be recognised, it's that they're not Oscar things, they should be Emmy things. So, for example, not the domain of the Empire podcast, but really oh of the Pilot TV podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and no, we should maybe no. move venue to that. Don't applaud him. Don't applaud him for crowbarring his other little thing in here. Uh, but, yeah, anyway, so the... Uh, so, yeah, that's happening. It has yeah. happened. But that, that's a, it is a thing, because there's a school of thought that... Roma didn't win Best Picture because there is an anti-Netflix movement mm-hmm. within the Oscars. Not that you know they can all get organised in that way because you know a lot of them are incompetent. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that yeah, does seem to be the the preferential ballot at the Oscars. For example, allows people to vote for Roma in eighth place and Green Book in second or third place, which is possibly what happened, and possibly why yeah. Green Book 
won the Oscar in the end. I have no hate for Green Book whatsoever. Like, there was a mass wringing of hands and outpouring of abuse on Twitter when, uh, when it was announced. It was good. I really enjoyed it. It's fine. Was it the best film of the year? Fuck no. no but it was really good. No, but, you know, was Rami Malek's performance the best performance of that year? <laughs> no, it wasn't. Um, I love segues. So Rami Malek. Oh, very nice. Rami Malek is apparently, and he has been for a while, in talks to play the bad guy in Bond 25. And what do okay. we think of that? Are we happy with that? Do we think it's a good mix? Last two I, Bond baddies? Almost certainly an Oscar-worthy performance, I think. <laughs> you think? <laughs> it does seem to be a thing. I mean, there, there was actually, a, if you remember when... Uh, uh, Jean Dujardin won, didn't he? He, he, he made a. Do I ever? A, of course, you loved that film. Yeah, but I did love he that film. Um, he made a video about how he was not going to be a Hollywood villain now. If you're a foreign language speaker and you win an Oscar, you immediately get cast as a villain in a Hollywood movie. I, I have some questions. Uh-huh. Um, he seems, and this may be unfair, but in my head, he's quite a small person, and he, so he will he would not be physically taxing Daniel Craig, maybe. Is that, is that fair? He could, be, he could be lithe, right? He so could he can, be lithe. He can he jump lithe, around. Sure, he can, like, yes. box the back of his knees. Like, you're, oh, you're shit. <laughs> Bite your legs off, yeah. kind of thing. Literally yeah. do that. Like, he's like, like the Black Knight in Monty yeah. Python and the Holy Grail, which... Is, yeah, I know, but I'm just I'm making it more explicit for the audience because it might be a reference to our guest later on. Who knows? <laughs> But you, 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 you know, you think this is a good career move for him? Nick Cage won the Oscar for leaving Las Vegas. He went, enough of that method shit. I'm going to do The Rock, <laughs> Face Off, Conner. and Con Air. <laughs> Three of his best films. Three, Three of his best films, films. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And films that he should have won the Oscar for, if yes, you ask correct. me. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's fine. I mean, yeah. the, the rumor was that Danny Boyle wanted the star of Cold War as his villain. That was one of the rumours circulating at the time that he left. And obviously that was that perhaps was said to play not so well with Eon, so they're obviously much more up for Rami Malek, who yeah. of course did just star in an $800 million grossing Oscar-winning film. It's kind of a, a no-brainer, I guess. Yeah. I think he should keep the teeth. The Freddie Mercury <laughs> teeth. That'd be terrifying, wouldn't it? You know, we've had, we've had Bond bad guys who are obsessed with gold, and we've had people who've got like weird hands and all sorts of stuff, but like, Mega Nashers. <laughs> it should be like the new Jaws. Would that be his name? Would be, yeah, be Mega like Nashers. Mega Nashers! Should we move on? Yeah, yeah. I think we should. Okay. Yeah, thank yeah. God. Yeah. What do you got for me? Uh, Edge of Tomorrow. Okay. The sequel to Edge of Tomorrow, which is Edge of the Day After Tomorrow, is finally <laughs> a thing that's happening. They've got a screenwriter. They have written a screenwriter. So Matthew Robinson, who wrote The Invention of Lying, um, is going to be writing the screenplay for this. So this could end horribly. But you know, if it does, <laughs> they can just do it again. Um, but this, this is, so bear in mind, this is the film based on the source material that was uh, All You Need Is Kill. And yep. then it became Edge of Tomorrow. And then in between theatrical and home ends release, they changed it to Live, Die, Repeat, which is hands down the worst name for any film ever made. So. The thinking at the moment is that this film will be live, die, repeat, and repeat. <laughs> See, Ooh. I don't mind the title live, die, repeat. Get out. And I think, <laughs> but the best title, of course, is All You Need Is Kill. Yes, which yes. Is But that wouldn't have worked. But Edge of Tomorrow was just a nothing oh, title. Meaningless. I expected yeah, it's 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 it to be about like the U2's that, guitarist in the future, that, but it's, it's not. But, you know, you, it's not asking that much, isn't it? Like, it annoys me sometimes when a US film gets a different UK title, like, for example, Avengers Assemble. But you'd think that they could contain or continue the consistency to have the film maintain its title between the cinema and the fucking DVD. It's not asking <laughs> that much that it not no. just be this amorphous changeling thing. I think they realised their mistake and they, they walked it back. To something worse. Quick show of hands. Who thinks that Live, Die, Repeat is a better title than Edge of Tomorrow? 
I'm going to put both my hands up, so uh, there we go. Um, for people who got home who didn't see that, every single person in the room put their hands yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind yeah, of amazing. Yeah. Overwhelming majority. Um, yeah, and speaking of things people. that are overwhelming, mm -hmm. God, I'm good at my segues no, today. You? you are. Fucking nailing it. Uh, the X-Men Dark Phoenix trailer. <laughs> that was this overwhelming, week. wasn't it? It was oh overwhelming. God. It was. I mean, first of all, I mean, who remembered that an X-Men film was coming out this year? I keep, I keep forgetting. I cannot keep that film in my head. I mean, in theory, one and one is meant to be coming out. I was oh, actually yeah. hoping that they might stick the new mutants, the entire movie, on the trailer as a kind of post-trailer sting. Uh, yeah. kind of, but they seem to have just forgotten that they've made the new mutants. Apparently that's been pushed back even further. Yeah, they, they haven't so. started the reshoots yet. Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. But X-Men Dark Phoenix is still a thing that's happening and mm. it kind of boggles my mind. Um, I think the whole problem with that franchise is the fact that Jennifer Lawrence went from being a hot, you know, hot young thing to being the biggest star in the world. So they had this situation where they'd cast this interesting actress who play, you know, appeared in this really interesting indie movie as Mystique. Mm. And then suddenly they discovered that, oh my God, she's a huge A-lister now. We have to figure out something to do with Mystique. And like, it's unusual in comics for somebody to have been consistently a bad guy forever. But really, if you look back at the X-Men comics, She's been consistently a bad guy forever. And they've, they've left themselves in this position where she's so big, they have to make her the heroine and center of these films, and it just doesn't fit. It just doesn't work. That's so Raven. <laughs> that, okay, fair. That's fair. That, that was all right. I'll, I'll give them that one. Is that you all you had written down? That's all I've got. I've got nothing up here. No, it's, it's an odd one because, like, you're absolutely right. And so they... Has, has everyone seen the trailer for Dark Phoenix? Uh, they kill the shit out of well, her in the trailer. They appear to. Like, if they're showing her funeral is in the trailer. If they're, if they're showing us that, then she's almost certainly not dead. And even if she is, nobody stays dead in no, comics. But except saying, except saying, the director has confirmed that yeah, she's died. Yeah, the director's confirmed so. she's died. You see... That doesn't mean anything. Jean Grey's remorse yeah. over her death. You see the actual death scene, and then you see the funeral. And people are like, did she die? <laughs> I couldn't I don't tell. believe it. I don't believe it. Now, well, you want to retain a little mystique for these yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's true. It's but true. I think the, the other problem is she seems to have changed colour. She is now Will Smith genie blue, um, <laughs> as opposed to her previous pleasing shade of cerulean. That's actually very true. Yeah. I couldn't work it. She looked a bit ill, I thought. Yeah, she's Maybe she's one. just coming down with something. She's very, yeah. yeah. I feel this is a bit harsh on the X-Men franchise, because because the last one, Apocalypse, was... Apocalyptic. Yeah, <laughs> it was awful. But before that, we had Days of Future Past. Yeah, X-Men First yeah. Class, I really like as well. So X2, one of the suddenly, there seems to be, if there's an X-Men movie, there's talk about Dark Phoenix on Twitter, everyone piles on, like, oh, the X-Men franchise is so rubbish, oh, so we're so over it. It was one bad movie. It's coming off the back of one bad movie. It is coming I off the back of one bad movie. I'm and gonna, I'm gonna give this one every opportunity. And the Phoenix to saga is brilliant. Yeah, I just think Potential. they may have jumped into this too soon. Yeah. Yeah. Too soon, too soon, too soon. Too soon. You know, even if we were still at the level where Days of Future Past was, this is coming out <laughs> in the same year as Avengers Endgame. So Hang it kind of doesn't really matter. Yeah, Chris Wait a minute. Chris Nothing can't stand up for a short while. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to get excited about anything that doesn't have Thanos in it. Yep. Yeah. True story. If anyone's been following me on Twitter recently, you may know that I have been recommending a certain film every single day. Uh, it's not tedious. It's, well, part of that thought, I thought, you know, it'd be quite funny if you just recommended one film every single day for a year, and then if it was a film that was the fourth biggest of all time and therefore didn't need your help. But it is Avengers Infinity War. True story. Today I was in the shower. A bit of nudity for you there, people. Uh, <laughs> 
I was in the shower getting ready for this, this podcast, going over my lines and stuff, and I heard from the, uh, the shower a very familiar theme. And I came out of the shower, and my wife was watching Avengers Infinity War. <laughs> so what? you think that thread doesn't work? I say it does. <laughs> I feel like she didn't need that much prompting. I've met your wife. No, this is very, very true. This is, you know, she wants to finish this with the word drop of a hat. That's why I married her. She's a keeper. You hold on to her. Anyway, that's enough of the news. Thank Should you, we move yes. on? Time yes. now oh. for our first guest. Okay, no, Are we going to do? What are you no, going to no, do? I was going to say that uh, you forgot one piece of news. What is it? Well, there's some Dune casting. Oh, God! To share with you uh, today. But, but there isn't. Uh, that's irrelevant. Uh, <laughs> they have, no, there was some Dune news. They did say they're going to be making some more Dune computer games. There you go, that's a bit of Dune news for you. And this, Nobody cares. No, see, you say that, Helen. But the thing that got me into Dune in the first place was a computer game, which was Dune 2, which is like, one of the first real-time strategy computer games. So, uh, so this, is, this is big news for me. You were literate. In fact, this whole trip's been weird for me because uh, it turns out Glasgow isn't near the one place that I wanted to visit in Scotland, which was the Brigadier Dune, which is, of course, named after the Frank, <laughs> the Frank Herbert novel. And I, you know, I can't, uh, I can't go. Uh, right, that is it for movie news. Shut up, Jimbo. Honestly, you're ruining my segues. I'm, I've proved I'm really good at them today. Time now for this week's guest. He is a man who is many, many things, multi-talented, multifaceted. He is a BAFTA-winning actor. He is a writer, a novelist, those are kind of the same thing. Uh, he's a python, he's a diarist, he's a documentarian, he's a TV presenter, he's a very, very well-traveled man. He's a national treasure and a freshly minted knight, and not just one who says knee. He's involved with the new documentary, Final Ascent, about the legendary Scottish mountaineer, Hamish McInnes. We are delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the one and only, the legendary, Sir Michael Palin! <laughs> oh dear. That's pretty good. Oh dear. I'm overcome. Usually in Glasgow I get heckled. <laughs> yeah. This will come later, I'm sure. Oh well during the rehearsal there was just silence. Was that, yeah, silence. Absolute silence. Yeah. silence. Yeah, I'm used People to were silence. throwing oranges yeah. and all sorts of mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, mm. Michael, welcome. How are you? Thank you. I like to start off with the I'm very questions. well. It's been an extraordinary day, really, because yes. I've been with my friend Hamish, um, who is one of the, you know, just one of those amazing people and to see him and see his film yes and to see him actually you know he's not given to kind of premieres and all that sort of thing but he <laughs> uh, was reluctant to come along and now it's very hard to get him away from the crowd he's <laughs> been wind and dine um but it was that that was a, been the high point of the day really has been working with hamish amazing and hamish is what 88 now 88 88 and uh you know he had this um misdiagnosis of dementia recently and, and lost a whole chunk of his life. Mm. And um, it, it turned out that it was something that could have been diagnosed much earlier. He didn't have dementia. And now he's re sort of rediscovered his past by looking at um, his old photos on archive. That's what's sort of given him back his yes. mind and his memory. So, yeah. so it's quite inspiring. Yeah, it's an yeah. incredible documentary, Final Ascent. Check it out yeah. if you haven't already seen it. And uh, how did you get involved in that? Because you're, you're part of the, the documentary, you're very much well, I, I uh, first met Hamish um, when we were doing Monty Python and uh, Terry Jones and myself were quite keen to film some of Monty Python up in Scotland because we were fed, of, fed up of working in London in these little studios and parks and things like that. <laughs> so you go up to Scotland, you've got this fantastic landscape, it's very brilliant. And Ian McNaughton, who was the director, knew Hamish and said, could you help us out? 
and Hamish found various locations and ended up um, helping us in um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail quite a lot because he built the Bridge of Death, um, <laughs> which people have to cross. Um, or, you know, if they get the color, name of the color wrong, I think it is, yeah. they get thrown into the Gorge of Eternal Peril. Yes. So not only did Hamish build the Bridge of Death, he also threw bodies high into the air down into the Gorge of Eternal Peril. <laughs> And at that time, he was head of mountain rescue in the coast. <laughs> he's just so pythonic. And he's got a terrific, he's got a terrific sense of humour. Amazing. So a he very was... black sense of humour. He loved it. He loved it. I was, I was talking to him about this afternoon, and I said, um, uh, you, you know, it was great, Hamish. You, you threw those dummies so high in the air, and it was just brilliant. He said, oh, the few people I've worked with, I'd like to throw higher than that. <laughs> <laughs> so, OK, yes. <laughs> So how trusting were you of the Bridge of Death? I mean, obviously you trust, I didn't trust have Hamish to go, implicitly. Yeah. I didn't have to go over it. Yeah. Uh, Cleese went over it. And <laughs> he just, he's still alive, although he, he says that's the worst thing he's ever done, the most dangerous thing he's ever done in his life. I didn't actually have to go across it, but we trusted Hamish, no, absolutely. Uh -huh. But the thing was that with Python, especially in, in that, that time, we didn't use CGI, we didn't use special effects. Everything was done, you know, we did the real, we did the real thing ourselves. Someone yes. had to fall in the water, like in the fish snapping dance, you <laughs> fell in the water, you know, there's no kind of, oh, well, we'll do that later. <laughs> so something like uh, Holy Grail was very much, we needed Hamish's skills yes. to make it look right. But, uh, you know, the, as you know, in Glencoe, the, the, um, um, the scenery is fantastic. So we've got some magnificent shots. Yeah. And, and, of course, it was all free that the Scottish landscape. They didn't let us use any, uh, the National Trust of Scotland wouldn't let us use any of their castles because they said, you know, it was um, not consistent with the dignity <laughs> of the fabric of the buildings, you know. These are buildings where they poured hot oil, you know, put people's heads on stakes, but no comedy, no. <laughs> so we, we used Dune Castle, yes. which is a private castle, if you can have yes. that. And they were very... Um, they were very welcoming and they've done extremely well out of it because um, they have a lot of tourists go to Dune Castle, especially Japanese apparently. You get okay. whole tour buses from Japan go up to see where Monty Python was filmed. <laughs> and the enterprising uh, gift shop in, in, at Dune Castle have uh, coconuts, halves of coconuts, <laughs> which they sell to the Japanese. <laughs> that should get some sort of enterprise award, I think. <laughs> Having read your diaries, it, it, it feels like the shoot for Holy Grail was at times on the miserable side because of the weather. It may not have been exactly well, what you wanted. Yes. I mean, we were constrained by a very, very small budget. I yeah. mean, the budget was only just over £200,000 for the whole film. In order to cut costs, we got Stirling University students to come and be the army. <laughs> and they were, all, they were stood on top of a hill and shot from behind, so they were all silhouettes. <laughs> And they said, you know, if you can come in rags. So they said, well, yes. we'll, we'll just come as we are. And they, <laughs> they all stood there and they were given posts. So that was good. Um, we drove ourselves up to the location, you know, all the nights in a sort of VW combi up to the location. We, sort of, we, we had to cut a, lot of, uh, cut a lot of corners. That was part of the fun of it, was, was trying to get it together for a very, very small budget. I can't remember what exactly your question was. But uh, was, it, was it on the miserable side? Was it on the miserable side, that's yeah. right, yeah, the miserable side. So it was a bit miserable, yeah. um, because we had, we had chain mail, which was basically woolen 
chain mail and it was fine when it was dry as soon as it got wet it just it became twice as heavy and dragged you down you could barely move and certain of those taller members of the Monty Python team have a very low um, irritation threshold <laughs> I mean John has to just come out on a Monday and he's irritated from the start whether he's got you know, uh, chain mail which is heavy anyway so there were certain days when it was quite depressing but um, at that time we didn't know how anyway, we certainly didn't know quite how successful Python, a Python film would be I mean yeah. the television series had gone well but it was two or three years after that we'd broken up you know, and it, it could be a, could have been a total disaster. So there were, there were there were difficult there were difficult times. I mean, scenes like I can remember doing the knights who say ni, and um, <laughs> it was all done in one afternoon in some corner of the forest. And I was standing on a ladder in order to make me look tall, yeah. which is kind of quite. And you have got a huge helmet on, so you can't see my face. And we just sort of say, yeah, what a shrubbery. <laughs> you know, who the fuck's going to hear this for a start? <laughs> and even if they know what a shrubbery is. <laughs> so I think we felt, for instance, that afternoon, I thought this was a total waste of time. And we did our best. But I said, well, that's one of those ones that will just end up on the cutting room floor. And, you know, quite the opposite has happened. Yeah, and that's to Nene. That's my most prior. The knighthood I'm most proud of, I should say. <laughs> the order of me. Indeed. Um, you mentioned uh, John Cleese there, and I believe... I'm sorry. On, <laughs> no, I, I was... Uh, yeah. Just I, Believe me, I was, as, I was as appalled as everybody else was, uh, but we'll get past it, it's fine. Uh, on Desert Island Discs, he said that you would be his luxury item. I know. How weird is that? You That's know? very strange. You can't get arrested for things like that now, don't you? Yeah. That was my Me Too moment. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I mean, what would, um, but he, he is yeah. no he's <laughs> we have a lot of laughs together I'm a huge admirer of yes. John I mean he is without doubt the outstanding comedian I think we've produced in the last 40 50 years possibly since Spike Milligan um, he's just terrific and he can do everything but you know he's his other life is <laughs> more complicated <laughs> so I don't I don't I don't, I don't go there and I'm not sure. The luxury item was, I have to say, it was not physical. It was just um, because I talk so much that you wouldn't need a radio. That's what he said. <laughs> Fair enough. And uh, this year marks 40 years since Life of Brian. Yes. As well, which is yeah. an incredible film. And uh, your memories of that as well. I mean, is that something that... Do you think mm. of that fondly compared to Holy Grail? Do you think of the, the Python movies is wrapped up in a, in a bundle in a way? Um, it was certainly more comfortable to shoot. Yeah. I mean, it was nice and warm country and all and that. You and wrote it in Jamaica money. as well, I believe. What? You wrote it in Jamaica We, we as well. wrote it in Barbados. Barbados. Yes, yes. we wrote it the well, last bit mm. in Barbados. I mean, that was really... Um, I mean, the, the great thing about Life of Brian is we didn't honestly know whether we could make it or not. We, we wrote the script, we sold it to EMI. The head of EMI read the script and said, we can't do this. Who in the company allowed these people to make this film? <laughs> Sacked them immediately. And so we suddenly had no, you know, we'd sent people out to Tunisia to start building the set, and we were stuck. And that's when George Harrison, God bless him, came in and said he'd find five million just to, to, to make the film. And people said later, you know, George, that's amazing, five million quid to make it. What's that all about? He said, well, you know, 
I just wanted to see it. <laughs> I thought, well, my God. Only a Beatle can do that, or possibly a Led Zeppelin, or possibly yeah. a Queen. But anyway, um, from the start, you know, it had got off to a good footing. We had a good producer wanted to see the film. It was quite, I think it was our best writing in, in the end, because it was, I mean, Holy Grail is fun, and it's very jolly, and lots of silly things. I like it a lot. And Meaning of Life has got some nice, savage stuff. But I think uh, Life of Brown was a bit more of a gamble. And it was going into the area of religion. Everyone said, mm. you shouldn't go there. It'll be offensive. And he thought, well, provided it's offensive to the right people, it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, and, uh, and that's what it turned out to be. It was more about organized religion and people telling you what you had to believe and, and that they, they would control you and all that, rather than anything negative about Jesus or, or you know, that period then. So it was a tricky one to do, and I think we sort of got it right. <laughs> Various places, including Glasgow. Yes. Banned okay. it, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Alison, who runs this festival, I don't know if she's around at the moment, she was the one who got Glasgow to unban it. That's uh, something. And also, a marvellous thing happened. It was banned in Aberystwyth. <laughs> uh, well, you can understand that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Um, but Aberystwyth, about, oh, I think it must be about 10 years ago now, elected a new mayor. And the mayor they elected was called Sue Jones Davis. And Sue Jones Davis was in the life of Brian. <laughs> <laughs> she was Brian's girlfriend, red hot revolutionary, <laughs> cavorted around with no knickers on, you know, doing all that and sort of stuff. And, and it was just great. And she immediately said the one thing she was going to do was get Life of Brian shown in Aberystwyth. <laughs> and Terry Jones and myself went along there and we did a sort of you know, like civil rights march up oh to the, the Odeon Aberystwyth and it was shown That's amazing. for one night only, I'm afraid. So you've been acting a little bit more recently. You were in Death of Stalin uh, most recently. Uh, yeah. Is it something that you're doing a little bit more of? Because obviously you, you do a lot still traveling, yeah. still making documentaries, still writing. Yeah, the nice thing is to be able to do lots of different things, you know, mm. and um, I do love travelling still. It's got to be a point to it. And I, I must say, doing the uh, North Korea documentaries, mm. which we did, um, um, filmed in, in May and April last year, that's terrific. That was good. I don't want to do long journeys anymore. I don't, it's, it's, it's all, it's, it just takes you away from home for too long and all that. And I've got grandchildren and all that. You know, I want to stay at home and see them grow up. But doing those... Um, you know, a month shoot, three weeks shoot, mm -hmm. travelling, I like that. Acting, it just depends what comes along. I mean, there aren't, well, there aren't that many really good scripts around, but, you know, The uh, Death of Stalin, Amando Iannucci, you know, I'd go over hot coals to work for him, he's just <laughs> so, so brilliant. And uh, I did um, uh, Remember Me a few yes. years ago, the sort of spooky story, Yes. which was nice to play someone who was really unpleasant um, <laughs> so it just depends on horses for courses I, I, I really like to have a mix in the life really rather than just one thing the thing about acting is it, it takes up a lot of time you know and you can go and do a, f a film abroad like we did in in North Korea and we just filmed every day we were there 13 days start in the morning finish as late as we could at night just to get as much as we could mm. on a film you know 13 days you would spend a sort of many of those days waiting to be called. And you're called at four in the afternoon and, and you do your bit and then that's it. So it's, it's actually time, it's not, not, um, it's not a good, good use of time mm. in a way. But if you get a part like The you know, Death of Stalin, that's mm. just, and to be with a cast like that. Oh my word. And yeah. you know, to, to act with Steve Buscemi has long been 
uh, my hero, number yeah. one American actor. That was just fantastic. So I was very, very happy to do that. And as a film writer, I mean, looking at, looking at your diaries, one of your diaries is entitled Halfway to Hollywood. And I think yeah. for a reason, because there's, you seem to be at times during the 80s resisting the lure of Hollywood. Sometimes offers would come in. And the movies that you wrote during that mm. time, things like uh, the, the Missionary and American Friends, mm. were character-based Yes. So it weren't necessarily yeah. in that sort of broad Python-esque comedy vein. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was clearly something that was very deliberate in, on your part. Yes, I mean, I, I, my sense of humour is really based on observation. And, and I think any, any half-decent writer, that's what they do. They observe what's going on, the way people are, the way they move, the way they talk. And, and really the best place you're best qualified to write about the people in whom, around whom you're brought up. So in, in my case, it's British comedy comes easier to me than the broad American comedy. I'm not saying that one's better than the other, Over, but yeah. um, I do find that I, I'm looking for Britishness in my, in my comedy, whether it's Rupin Yarns or, or whatever, mm. which makes it rather difficult to make the transition to American comedy, where generally in the 80s, if you went to Hollywood, you took the money, but you played a butler. That was it, yes. you know? Yeah. Dudley Moore, John Gilgood, yeah. Denham Elliott. Yeah. Brilliant actors. They want to end up as butlers. <laughs> well, you know, the, being very British while around. People are going, oh, crazy. Wow. Oh, I shat myself in the pool. Oh, my God. Oh, my knobs dropped off and all that. So, you know, kind of what I would call broader American comedy. Um, yeah. So um, I, I, I start with the British comedy. And interestingly enough, um, I saw the other day a documentary which is based on Handmade films, that period. Yes. George started Handmade for Life of Brian, and they made a lot of movies right up to, I think, about 1988. And um, it's, a, it's, it's very interesting because the two main people involved in the production of those films were George Harrison mm. and Dennis O'Brien. Yes. Now, George had a very British sense of humour. He liked zany little British things and all that. That's what he wanted. He, didn't, he liked his mates who were Brits to do the comedy. Dennis O'Brien was his accountant and, and sort of organised his money, but Dennis was very much an American in his mind. And big movies had to be Hollywood movies. Mm. So he, he, what he would do is, is they, would, they would get a slate of movies and they, he would try and make them into Hollywood movies. Yeah. And it didn't work. There's um, a tension there. There was a, there was a film called Water, uh, which was um, all about them discovering Perrier water gushing out of the ground in a Caribbean island. It was quite a funny idea, and it was written by uh, Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet, who are terrific, wrote The Likely Lads and all that. And uh, Sean Connery was in it, and Michael Caine was in it. They, I mean, they just spent a huge amount of money. And at that moment, I was working on a private function with Alan Bennett. Mm. And we kept getting told we couldn't afford you know, whatever we needed because it was all being spent on water. <laughs> yeah. And in the end, water was pretty disastrous. And, but that was because Dennis was pitching it for Hollywood and didn't understand there's got to be a sort of basis, there's got to be some organic feeling there in the comedy. And you can't just impose it and get lots of big names and a few yeah. slapstick jokes. Whereas a private function, which I have to say Dennis never really understood, because it was about Britain in the 1940s and it was about shortages and it was about people cheating <laughs> each other, you know, yeah. and, 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 and having uh, sort of um, smuggling food in and all that. You know, what's so funny about that? You know, that's just <laughs> that's people being unpleasant. 
<laughs> but it was terrifically funny. I don't know if yeah. any of you know Private Function, but that was Alan Bennett on top form. And in the end, of course, Private Function was one that was remembered. Yeah. And, uh, and water just, well, <laughs> liquefied. <really. laughs> yeah. There is a tension, as you say, sometimes between the, the American way of doing things and the British way of doing things. And one of the things I love about A Fish Called Wanda is the way that John Cleese managed to balance yes. those two worlds, yes. in a way. Yes, that's good, yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. But it was, very much a, it was very much a British tale. Mm the way it was set, you know, yeah. and the tempo was set by John, playing rather well, I thought, uh, a kind of romantic hero. And these Americans come into the British world rather than the other way around. And that's what's so funny, you know, because mm. Kevin Klein is so out of place. He's such a complete <laughs> and total shit, you know. Uh, uh, not that there aren't British shits, you know, but oh, you know what I mean. He just, yes. and Jamie, you know, very uh, savvy uh, manipulator and all that. Uh, I, I thought that worked well because what he'd done is bring, brought Americans into um, a very sort of British setup. Whereas Fierce Creatures, which was the follow-up, which was done many, many years later, I don't think worked as well because he tried to make it in an American style. Yeah. It was all about big business and all that. Yeah. And instead of being a sort of solidly British base, the Brits were all sort of, you know, silly sort of zookeepers and all that. Mm. And the rest of it was all about big money and... and who runs what and all that, which are kind of American concerns. Well, Fierce Creatures was essentially made twice, in a way. They brought in a different director and yes, oh yes, yeah. extensive reshoots. Yeah, yeah. no, no, that, that's right. Because <laughs> they want to do some reshoots. And, and I remember John saying to me, I know you're doing your travel program. And I was about to do Full Circle. Okay. And he said, how long are you going to be away? A week or two? And I said, 10 months. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I have to say, rather embarrassingly, he delayed it, the whole oh, reshoot wow. for yeah. 10 months. I think it was just for me. They were working out a lot of other things and sacking directors and bringing new people <laughs> in. But I uh, am, yeah. yeah. Uh, this is all, of course, documented in Michael's incredible series of diaries, uh, which go up to 1998, yes. as things stand. Uh, is there a plan for more in the works at the moment? Yes, there is, actually. Um, we're going to do... It's, it's because this started in 1969, the 10-year period is always slightly awkward. So it's 1999 to 20, probably 2010, just okay. to round it off. Yeah. I'm a little bit worried about the closer you get to the present day, mm -hmm. I think the, the less satisfying diaries are. I think diaries have to... Have, there's got to be a gap of about 20 years, okay. I think. Otherwise, yeah. they become like modern, present-day gossip. Or a really, diary should be about, I think, should reawaken a sort of period in your mind that has okay. gone by. But I suppose the, the early, what, noughties are they called? Yeah, you know, still, yeah. still a sort of, it, it's an old, it, it's quite, quite, you know, kind of very much in the past now, isn't it? Yeah. Although I did see Tony Blair on television today, so he's, <laughs> he's, um, he's not dead. It feels like a distant past there. Yes. It? Really, it really, really <laughs> does. Uh, we've got to let you go, Michael, but if you oh, are to write I'm about so this in yeah. your diary tonight, uh, will you put a good word in for the Empire podcast? Yeah, no, absolutely. So we read about it in a few you. years' time. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, thank uh, you very much. I mean, you can do pleasure. another three minutes. Another three minutes? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm so enjoying it. Yeah. <laughs> I must just... I mean... I'm just saying, I, I, it's not that I'm not happy. It's a lovely thing to do, but I've got to catch the last train back to London because <laughs> I've got to work tomorrow on my latest project. Yes. I mean, I'll be honest, Michael, I've run out of questions. So we could oh, okay, just... Well, we could just um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We could just sit here yeah, in okay. silence. Yeah, let's do for, that. Um, let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> do you um, 
Do you, do you enjoy train travel? Is that, <laughs> is that something you like? Are you yes, enjoying? I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah I Great. do. Yeah, all right. <laughs> That's the only reason I came up to Glasgow, really. Oh, okay. <laughs> for the train service. <laughs> Michael Palin, everybody. <laughs> Thank you so much. That was a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, my word. We're going to move straight into the review section of the show. We're going to kick off with Fighting With My Family, which is Stephen Merchant's comedy drama, which stars Florence Pugh as real-life British WWE star Paige and charts her ascent from humble beginnings as part of a wrestling family in Norwich. Jimbo. Ooh, you've thrown a curveball. This was not going to be my film to start was off with. But yes, I'll jump into this. No, one. I just, yeah. I just, I just like looking at you, yeah. uh, Helen. No, <laughs> no, no, it's absolutely fine. I can do it. This mind. is the origins of Paige, who I am led to believe is a wrestler. The only reason I'm led to believe that is I stopped watching when the Ultimate Warrior lost his belt to Sergeant Slaughter at Royal Rumble. 19. I have made a huge and, mistake. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this, this is a funny one. So it, it's uh, she comes from a working class family, the Knights, and they are a sort of a wrestling institution. Did they say knee? They may or may not say knee. They do say... They do have knee pads. They do have knee pads, yes. <laughs> Good save, thank you, Helen. So, so they're, they're a wrestling family, and she gets selected to join... To the, train for. To train for. So the NXT, which is like the, the sort of... Uh, the feeder. Whole, feeder. Thank yeah. you, are very good at helping, helping you. Yeah. Thank you. Did you say feeder uh, in a kind feeder. of... Feeder. I didn't mean Norwich to. Norwich accent yeah, so, or something. Feeder. Yeah, it's a feeder area for the WWE, and she goes from sort of small town Norwich wrestler, sort of wrestling in car parks and whatnot, to... The w it happened. Uh, to the WWE, it's, I found this incredibly heartwarming. A lot mm. of people have said that it's a little, well, take some, shall we say, liberties with the facts. But it's, uh, and it does, because like, they, they've marketed this with The Rock in it, and he's not in it. He is in he, it. I mean, he's in it because they literally say, look, it's The Rock. Hello, The Rock, talk to us. And he comes in and says, hello. I'm The Rock. And then he walks off, so you can this, tell The Rock. That's actually pretty much an that's accurate representation of the scene. So it's not really about him, it's Florence Pugh as Paige, and it shows her sort of becoming part of the big time and her big break and becoming mm. the sort of divas champion. And, and struggling to deal with that and be, you know, homesickness, being yeah. away from her family, yeah, yeah. being really, really pressurised to kind of perform, you know, and just get ahead in this programme, being completely intimidated by all these incredible looking bikini models who mm. she's wrestling with, because she has the wrestling skills that they maybe don't at initially, um, but they look like bikini models. And and they think she looks like a character of Harry Potter. Which, you know, yeah, um, she's kind of a bit more goth. Um, and then there's also a sort of parallel story going on at home, which is the, uh, about her brother, Zach, who's played by Jack Loudon. Mm -hmm. and, um, and he wasn't chosen, and he always thought he'd be the wrestler in the family, mm. and she was just kind of doing her and thing. Uh, he was in um, uh, Dunkirk, and he's really, really good. He's amazing. He mm. was in Mary Queen of Scots uh, as well recently. Uh, he's, uh, he's one of those actors, I was sent to Chris last night, he's one of those actors, it takes me about 15 minutes to recognise him every film I see him in. I'm like, yeah. oh, that guy's really good. He's a bit like that Jack Loudon guy, but I don't I don't think it's the same person. He mm. looks completely different here. Um, and it always is him. Um, so if you see someone who's faintly like Jack Loudon, but clearly yeah. a different guy, it's definitely him, basically. And if you're standing next to The Rock, it's absolutely him. <laughs> <laughs> and this is uh, it's directed by Stephen Merchant. And he, this is very, very well balance which is a very tricky thing to adapt because if you look at their family history you know there's armed robbery they've done time like it's all there's a, a dark thread through this but they make light of it and i think nick frost as the dad really helps sell that and he makes it very sort of family friendly mm. very heartwarming and very light even though there's another side to this because 
this came about, The Rock saw the documentary, also called Fighting With My Family, on TV late night when he was filming Fast and Furious in the UK. And he just found it fascinating seeing this wrestling family who'd made it the big time because he himself comes from a kind of wrestling dynasty. Um, really great story. It's not perhaps the subtlest, but you know. It's yeah. nothing you haven't seen before. Yeah. yeah. But, but it's good. I really enjoyed it. It's this. really likeable. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's so a singer, likeable. not the song, isn't it? Yeah. Really. Yeah, Florence Pugh, everybody in it is, is just on form. It's a really well cast film. No, really, really yeah. good. I think uh, Jack Loughton's a real deal. Uh, he'll be a much bigger star in years to come. And Florence mm-hmm. Pugh, I think already people know how good mm-hmm. she is. Yeah. Uh, she's great. Lena Headey as well, as you know, lots of chemistry with, with Nick Frost. Yeah, actually, the most impressive thing I can say about this film is it makes you believe that Nick Frost and Lena Headey are married. <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, that's no mean feat, and fair play to them. <laughs> All right, so we gave this one three stars. Yeah. Three stars then for fighting with my family. I would probably have gone an extra star on this one. What about you guys? Um, um, yeah. Maybe I'm definitely between a three and a four. Yeah. I think I, ha- I definitely had a four star experience from it. <laughs> okay, I'm de- at least a high three. I'd definitely watch it again in a heartbeat. Yeah, because it's really funny. But also, uh, I was on set and I remember speaking to Stephen Merchant going, "This is just a comedy," and you got, "No, this is a drama first and foremost." And it, it, it does have dramatic moments, mm-hmm. and you do really root for the characters as well. But Terry so there we go. this, and she's really interesting. So maybe she thought it was. Like a three count, so actually that's, that's like five stars. So perhaps five stars. stars. Okay, yeah. but Terry reviewed it, which means we can't contradict it. So therefore, <laughs> three stars, <laughs> unequivocally, for fighting with my family. Uh, next up, we have the aftermath. Uh, last week's guest on the podcast, Jason Clark, stars in it as a British soldier who moves to Hamburg immediately after the Second World War. While there, he and his wife, played by Kira Knightley, move into a house owned by Alexander Skarsgård. And sparks begin to fly. <gasps> Shirts begin to fly off. It's like an episode of Supernatural. It's not. What's like... happening? Honestly, yeah. I don't know where to look. No, you, no. With the, you've, that, that's probably why you've never watched it. And, and I, I honestly, every time I watch Supernatural, I'm looking away from the TV. I'm under yeah. the couch. Yeah, it's yeah. terrifying stuff. Where the shirts aren't yeah, flying. Could be nipples at anyway. any second. <laughs> so this film, The Aftermath, is um, is actually quite a sort of classy and quite classic romantic melodrama in the sense that you have this sort of kind of love triangle between these three very unhappy people. Um, So Jason Clarke is quite idealistic. He's a sort of British colonel put in charge of basically rebuilding Hamburg and trying to denazify the inhabitants, which is, of course, a quite difficult thing because everybody felt they had to join the Nazi party when they were in power. Mm. But lots of those people did so in name only and didn't do anything bad. But he's got to figure out who actually did. So he's, he's kind of in this paranoid stew trying to figure out who's a bad guy and who's not and also try and help everyone with very few resources. Um, Rachel, his wife, the Kira Knightley character, is basically just stuck in this house because it's not really safe for her to go anywhere and there's very, very little she can do. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that they lost a child in the war, in the bombing, and she's still dealing with the fallout of that and just uh, a mess, uh, frankly. Yeah. Um, and in the middle of all that, you know, Jason Clark is so idealistic that he has failed to notice that his tenant looks like Alexander Skarsgård. Um, <laughs> So, you know, he's there. He's also wounded by the war. Was he a Nazi or was he not? We don't know. Um, but, uh, but he and Kira obviously look at each other and are like, that person is insanely good looking. Hmm. So, uh, so things begin to get a little bit romantically complicated. I mean, it is a very, very, very familiar story, but it is very, very well played. I think this cast are phenomenal. Um, and that kind of elevates it over what it would otherwise be. I think otherwise you could kind of 
see yeah. what was coming very, could be very a bit quickly. plotting otherwise, right? Yeah, but I don't think it is. I, I, was, I was quite caught up in it. And it's very atmospheric, beautiful costumes. Um, she wears a gold dress here that's every bit as good as her green dress in, in Atonement. And I know that half of you remember that because it's an amazing dress. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's worth seeing just for that. Good performances. Yeah. Oh, oh good. So yeah, we give it three stars. In fact, I three gave stars. it three stars. But again, <laughs> again it's, a, it's a high three. I, I did really, really enjoy it. Helen agrees with herself then. The three stars, <laughs> three stars for the aftermath. Um, by the way, whenever you said the name Rachel, I smiled inadvertently because has anyone else had that name ruined for them by the Dark Knight? Oh, God, yeah. Because I cannot hear the name Rachel without... Rachel! I, wanted, I, I, I wanted to reply, Rachel! That's what I wanted to reply in the middle of that, but that would not have been apt for lads. This is a tale of loss and guilt and grief and denazification. Mm. Much like the Dark Knight. Whoa! Oh. Well, Three stars. <laughs> Three stars then for the aftermath, and we're going to finish off then with the Irish horror, The Hole in the Ground, about a young mother who suspects that there may be more to her son than meets the eye. But it's not a Transformers film. Say. I should point that out. Uh, Jimbo. He doesn't even have a Transformer. It's rubbish. <gasps> uh, yeah, this is, uh, this is Lee Cronin's film. Um, it stars Shauna Kerslake as a young mother who is uh, fleeing her abusive husband uh, and moves with her son to a rural Irish community in the middle of nowhere next to a forest where there just happens to be an enormous great fuck-off sinkhole about 200 metres wide that descends into the bowels of hell. Um, so there's a not-too-subtle metaphor there for you. Um, it, it, despite, <laughs> des despite that, she's perfectly happy until her son disappears from his bed one night and goes missing. She goes out running for him, she comes back, he is found safe and sound. Or is he? <gasps> uh, and it's a, it, this is a cuckoo in the nest type thing. Uh, you know, is he really her son? Has her son gone insane? Is it something else? And it kind of it unfolds in a rather traditional way. Um, it, it brought to mind the Babadook, actually, weirdly to me, because the Babadook is kind of a, is a metaphor for depression. This is a bit of a metaphor for domestic violence. It's nowhere near as subtle as that. And it uses very established horror tropes. It doesn't do anything to kind of advance the genre at all, but it is very effective. Um, it's very, very creepy. The boy plays it extremely well, but the mother in particular, which is Shauna Kerslake, as I said, she's excellent as this mother on the edge who knows there's something wrong, but equally knows that talking about it makes her look like a lunatic. Mm. Um, it, it unfolds a little bit towards the end. I think there's a little bit too much focus on the boy and not enough on the great big buck off sinkhole, which <laughs> a little bit more interesting, but there you go. Um, but it is fun. It's not, I think, the new Babadook. But it's, it's a solid, decent, independent Irish horror. I'd certainly recommend if you're a fan of the genre, go and see it. The new The Hallows? Uh, sure, why not? Okay. <laughs> the new why Leprechaun, not? you know, anything No, else. that is, you're insulting my people right now. <laughs> uh, based on the true Brexit. So there we go. <laughs> Three stars there for the hole in the ground. And uh, also out this week, I don't think any of us have seen it because we're professionals, uh, but also out this week and also in Sky Cinemas as well is Stephen Knight's much maligned thriller Serenity mm. with Matthew McConaughey and Hathaway and my good chum from last week Jason Clark, him again uh, none of us have seen it but I can't no, but wait to see it's this it's on Sky and Steven Spielberg told us not to yeah Steven Spielberg's <laughs> furious about it uh, he's just shutting that shit down 24-7 um, but apparently this is batshit insane this movie yeah I can't wait to see it and also awful on a level that you have to see <laughs> to comprehend uh, so naturally we gave it two stars which is not a recommendation but uh, something that I cannot wait to see just for the shits and the giggles mm. 
should be good. So there we go. Uh, right, that's it for the review section of the show. So it is time for you guys to ask us questions. If Wait, indeed you wish to do so, you may not, in which case it's really going to be awkward. Uh, <laughs> we have some roving microphones going around this time, so wait for the microphone to get to you. Uh, Helen, pick the first person you have. Oh, Dallas, yeah. who brought us lovely iron brew pastels right down here in the... Uh, yeah. Did anyone else iron bring us anything? Iron brew pastels because he doesn't like cultural Can we all just say, he didn't bring us iron brew pastels, he brought us iron brew. <laughs> <laughs> which, and they're delicious. Iron brew is a great character in phase four of the MCU. <laughs> Can't wait for that. Yes. I just want to ask, if the Empire Film Podcast was a car, what speed would it go? <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely would not run. Like, let's be honest. Yeah. It'd be like somebody put diesel in a petrol engine. It would yeah. just or be a Finn disaster. Diesel. You don't want to do that. No. Do not put Finn Diesel he in a petrol squashed. engine. Don't do that. Yeah. Uh, no, it, yeah, it, it would blow up, killing everyone on board instantly. <laughs> I think. Oh, do you remember that? What was that car in um, Top Secret? Is it Pinto? <laughs> that explodes as soon as you <laughs> lightly tap it. That's the car. That? That's the joke. So yeah. who, who's seen Top Secret here, the movie we bang on about all the time in the podcast? Okay. Oh my God, the rest Ten of you, people. you've got Honestly, some work 20 to do people. tonight. Check right. it out, one of the funniest films ever made. There's an amazing joke in Top Secret uh, where there's a car chase and two cars are chasing after each other and one careens out of control, but the driver manages to get it under control just in time, and there is a car just sitting there inexplicably in a field, <laughs> and the car goes up to it and stops and just goes, and they both explode into flames. <laughs> and for years and years, I thought that was just the, the, the joke, that it was just, you know, just a funny thing, that you know, taking a piss out of car chases and movies. No, apparently it's true. There was an Italian yeah. car called a Pinto that was notoriously exploding. So, <laughs> so now you Satire. know. Satire, that's what that is. Yeah, There's good old sucker, like Abrahamson sucker. Hello. Yes. Hello. Is this on? Yeah. yeah. So I have a question that's off the back of the James Cameron podumentary. Yep. And with Mortal Engines and Alita not doing as well, like these big CGI films not doing as well as the creators may have hoped, is this a bad omen for Avatar 2 and its many, many sequels? <laughs> um, um, I thought you were going to ask, are we doing podumentaries on Mortal Engines and <laughs> Alita Battle Angel? And no, no, is the answer to that. Um, first of all, I don't think Alita Battle Angel has done as badly as you may have heard. I think it's on course to make 500 million or so worldwide. It did really, really well in China when it opened last yeah. weekend. So I think you never know. You may even get the sequel that the film so blatantly sets up. Uh, and we may get to see Edward Norton playing, essentially, Jim James Cameron. James Cameron, yes. uh, Which is really... So much so whenever I saw the movie for the first time. Did anyone else have this when... Uh, what's his name? Nova? Nova. Nova? Yeah. Whenever the main bad guy in the leader battle angel appeared, I thought Jim Cameron was playing him. And I thought that was some sort of meta commentary on directors. But no, it was Ed Norton in a bad wig. Um, <laughs> Anyway, yes, question, question, question. What was the question? It was a good question. Uh, Avatar, I, how does I it bode for Avatar? I think Avatar 2 will be enormous and will take people by surprise. There's been a really weird thing. I don't know if people have know what the, 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 the gentleman was talking about, but we did a podcast documentary uh, for Avatar with Jim Cameron, which is available now, and I worked really hard on it, so please listen to it. <laughs> and, uh, but... I've seen loads of tweets from people, and this is obviously a small sample size, but I've seen loads of tweets from people saying, I kind of had forgotten about Avatar, I'd kind of written it off, and this made me go back and revisit it, and it's actually really great. So, who knows? I think you write Jim Cameron off at your peril. Yeah. 
And that's, that's the thing. On one hand, it's incredibly presumptuous to plan, what, four or five Avatar sequels, um, especially uh, at this point, a decade after the original, and the original has not aged well in people's memory, at least. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I kind of have the same feeling, like you don't write James Cameron off until he turns in something rubbish, um, because he's just been so right so often in the past. So I'm still really hopeful for it, basically. And he's shooting it back to back. Yeah, yeah. So that's a thing that's happening, yeah. With, right. and, and with like kids and stuff, which is a slight worry. I mean, there are many things that worry me about it. I'm not going to lie, but at the same time, I'm I'm still hopeful and I'm still kind of excited for it. So, Jimbo, you were on set of the original Avatar. I was, and, and kind of on set of the sequel in that I, I interviewed him round the corner. And we, sat, <laughs> we sat we sat in his in a little room in his studio around the corner, and he's like, "Oh yeah, we're filming just around there." And I was like, no. <laughs> "No, you were set adjacent." Me. Yeah, exactly. Uh, oh, I think Avatar's magnificent. It's one of these things where, like, same with Titanic. Titanic is a brilliant film, but people are really, really snooty about it, and and it's kind of cool to backlash against it. And the same thing happened to Avatar, where people now think it's kind of cool to say Avatar was shit. It's fundamentally not shit. I, w- I would say I would think it's very unlikely that any of the Avatar sequels will come close to making the box office bash that the first one made because <laughs> it was a cultural event. It was the herald of a new era of 3D before we realised 3D was shit. And um, people went back and saw it again and again and 3D prices and all these sorts of things. And 3D was a really new and exciting thing. So it was event cinema. It wasn't just everyday cinema. And I don't think these films are likely to recapture that in the same way. He may do something magnificent. Maybe he will you know, discover an eighth colour that hitherto <laughs> had been unknown to science and the film will be entirely in that colour. In so we'll, Exactly. Yeah. It'll, it'll all be in peril or something bizarre like that. So, I don't know, we'll, we'll, we'll wait and see. I certainly wouldn't write it off. I think he's a, a visionary. I think he is an extraordinary filmmaker and I'm very excited to see all 18 of his new Avatar <laughs> Cut to Avatar 2 making $3.5 billion worldwide. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, so you guys um, earlier mentioned Netflix and streaming services, and I was wondering, with Netflix becoming more and more prominent in creating its own TV shows and its own films, do you think the film industry and cinema industry is going to be able to keep up with this, and if so, how? Well, no, they won't, and that's why we have had to launch a second podcast in order to deal with this emerging cultural phenomenon. It's It's not what she asked. That was not the question that she asked, and you know it. Okay, so I think uh, cinema's been here before, frankly, in the 1950s sort of when uh, TVs started to be popular and, and, and a sort of mass market thing that lots of people had. Um, and there have been consistent sort of waves of this being talked about, you know, when TV started getting bigger and home cinema became a thing, everyone's like, oh, that's it, that's all it over for Hollywood. But there is a fundamental thing about the cinema experience that is still... Uh, unreplicable at home because it depends on you having enough room in your living room for a hundred and something people so that is the thing that is sort of worth protecting that is the thing that uh, Hollywood relies on and and it it does have some perhaps not entirely positive um, results which is like that the studios spend all of their money on the films that you have to see on the big screen Mm. and so we get these enormous blockbusters and kind of the adult drama that you used to go to the cinema for has kind of vanished and that's all gone to Netflix and Mm. TV already Um, but cinema itself I think still does what it does better than any, anything else um, and I hope that that will continue. I think that the, the Netflix challenge is a real one um, and it's more about business than experience in a way. I think that the business is, 
you know, th those, those, not just Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, they're all going to Sundance, they're all picking up the young filmmakers, they're all picking up the, the hyped films and they're plonking them on their services whenever because they have a completely different business model to Hollywood. Mm. And, and Hollywood does have to adapt and it does have to meet these challenges and that's why this whole Oscar conversation is happening in all its technical yes. detail. Taking a ball home and playing with it. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. But at the same time, they have to figure out where the new, what the new rule is and what the new system is. But I still think the cinema survives. Basically, I genuinely think this is a really exciting time because I think uh, Amazon are really increasing their slate as well. Uh, they've announced something like they're going to make 30 movies a year, which is phenomenal. Uh, Apple are going to be entering the arena in a huge way as well. Uh, we may drown under the sheer amount of content, mm. but I think this is great. Uh, this will give incredible opportunities to filmmakers who can't get movies made under the uh, studio system as things stand. And quite frankly, it's going to give studios not Disney, obviously, because they own everything else, but it's going to give a lot of studios a real kick up the backside yeah. to uh, make content, not just go down the... Uh, and I realise there's a huge irony of the, uh, the man who's tweeting every day about Avengers Infinity War saying this, but to not just go down the big budget route all the time and not just to pursue blockbusters yeah. and, and not just to make things that are based on existing IP. And not just the fact that they're, they're making all these films as well, but the fact that, you know, because of... Netflix, we have now got Disney Plus, and Disney Plus are making Star Wars live action shows and are making Marvel live action shows. And quite frankly, I think this is great because nobody in Hollywood's gonna be unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like the utopia Dave outlines at the end of the film, Dave, where if you want a job, you have a job. <laughs> and if that job is writing an eight part miniseries about Loki, then so okay. be it. There you go, have it, why not? Hi, it was just on the back of you mentioning The Babadook there. I was just wondering what has been your favourite horror movie over the last 10 years? I know there's been so many great mm. smaller ones. God, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a good few years for horror, actually. Um, quiet Place for me. Quiet Place was great, yeah. Definitely. Mm. I mean, uh, Get Out, I thought was amazing. Mm. Um, uh, the Babadook is one of mine. Mm. Um, it Follows. Oh, that was really good. Yeah, yeah really yeah. freaking. It Follows is great. Um, the Witch. The Witch, great. great movie, God. The Witch was, uh, the Witch was terrifying. There's something um, I'm forgetting that terrified me so much, I've obviously blanked the title out of my head. <laughs> it might be the Us trailer, to be honest, I mean, geez. So, the last 10 years? Yeah. Okay, so drive me to hell. There we go. <laughs> drive me to hell, it was phenomenal. Movie. Sam Raimi coming back to the horror genre and just going, I can do this so much better than anybody else. <laughs> It has a demon goat and one of the best endings ever and uh, some of the best shots in horror history and Raimi's just a fucking boss and I'm so sad that he's not making movies at the moment. So, But who knows, and this new utopia where everybody gets a job in Hollywood, <laughs> I'm sure he will in time. Who's next? Hi. Hi. Um, in honour of uh, Michael Palin, uh, what's your favourite Monty Python skit and which of the three movies is better? <laughs> Sh shall I feel this? You should feel this. <laughs> Helen and I will leave the room. James, yeah. comedy hater dire. Oh, I yeah. lo love the bit with the guys and the joke. That was really funny. <laughs> yeah. It's really, really, really good. I, uh, fuck knows. I couldn't even name a Monty Python. You've seen a Monty Python oh film. No, no, Life of Brian. I think Mon Life of Brian is very good. And since that's the one I've seen, I'm saying that one. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, I'm going to see Holy Grail just to be different. Um, in terms of sketches, I like the Spanish Inquisition and I like... Nobody expected Helen to say that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and the, the German philosophers, I think it's hilarious. The football match is brilliant. I like the, uh, the Australian philosopher sketch where they just sing a song about philosophers, which is great. <laughs> and they're all called Bruce. Uh, Bruce, Bruce, Bruce and Bruce. Yeah, my favourite sketch, I think we talked about this in the podcast we a couple did, weeks ago, we actually, actually, yeah. my favourite sketch is the cheese shop sketch, 
which is one of those amazing, because they, they were so good at those kind of list sketches. So the argument sketch as well is fantastic. The dead parrot sketch obviously is amazing as well. But you had the cheese shop sketch, which I think was a Chapman and Cleese sketch. But it's um, Palin, and, Palin and Cleese. Um, and I saw them do that live. Genuinely one of the best, one of the most emotional experiences of my life. At the end, when they all came on stage, all apart from Graham Chapman, who had, you know, inconveniently died. Uh, <laughs> They came on, yeah, the Pythons make jokes about it all the time. <laughs> and um, there was just this amazing wave of love towards the Pythons, this incredible outpouring of love. And obviously given Terry Jones' terrible condition, it was, it, just, it was a really emotional time. But yes, cheese shop sketch and holy grail, because it's just funnier than the oh, other films. Oh, no, life is, life of Brian's Life of Brian's great. very, very funny. And the holy grail is, a series of sketches drawn together, but they're brilliant. They're so good. They're all good. The Black Knight sketch, oh, oh my God, so good. Knights of Knee, yes, please. Hello. So with Battle Angel Alita, I think it's fair to say the uncanny valley has been successfully traversed. Um, mm. What do you think this technology is going to, how do you think it's going to impact film? B beyond the fact that um, we can see John Wayne and Kevin Costner in the same Western. <laughs> Supplementary question, maybe, can, uh, not here. <laughs> can James Cameron save the Terminator franchise? Yeah. Clearly in the same way that the uh, streaming revolution is giving all uh, writers and directors a job, uh, this is taking all actors' jobs away, and so there will be great employment <laughs> over here, and then mass unemployment over here. If you've, if you've ever seen a Robin Wright film called The Congress, anybody seen that? It actually yeah, basically that. imagines this exact scenario. So the Uncanny Valley is always the thing that's kind of he held effects back, VFX back from creating entirely realistic humans. I can tell you that you have 100% uh, definitely seen digital doubles that you did not know were digital doubles mm. in major blockbusters in the here. past couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> we, could, we didn't want to come to Glasgow, so this is, uh, this is all CG, baby. Anyway, um, but yeah, VFX are not at a point where they can at least do digital doubles for short scenes yeah. absolutely perfectly. But only if every person in the scene is Peter Cushing. <laughs> that was not the one I was thinking of. I've, I've seen, I've seen uh, you've basically, uh, I know of digital double shots in Fantastic Beasts and Thor Ragnarok that you would not know are digital doubles. They're close up, they're like this sort of framing, mm. and they're entirely digital. But the point is that only works for very short moments and it only works if you have the actor to scan in and to get the performance in the first place. Mm. Um, so they still cannot create entirely realistic humans from scratch. Thank goodness yeah. we're safe for a little longer. Um, so it, there's a way to go, but it is, it is the big, it is the holy grail of VFX. <laughs> so it is, it is a big deal that it is, we're getting to even this point. Yeah, this is a big ethical quandary, isn't it? Because mm. who wasn't and who isn't still freaked out by that Galaxy advert with Audrey Hepburn? Mm. In it, which I just think crosses so many lines. Um, so I can imagine there's going to be a temptation to put old actors, if they can replicate people's performances, into blockbusters. But I really hope they don't. What I do hope they do, uh, what I do hope they do, <laughs> is that they they just take a leaf out of Marvel's book and <laughs> and use this as an opportunity to let actors have a blast playing younger versions of themselves. Yeah. But as long as they're playing younger versions of themselves because the Marvel technology is Lola, I believe it's called. It's not Marvel, but yeah, it's yeah, a company. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, they use it. But, and um, that is uncanny now. Yeah. There's, mm. you know, we can't talk about yeah, but the if movie the, For example, yeah. there might yeah. be a film out next Friday. I don't know. We, <laughs> Dallas might be wearing the relevant shoes right now. I don't know. But it's, it's, there might be some de-aging in that that's completely invisible. Obviously, if there were, we couldn't film. tell you because it's embargoed. Yeah. But if, yeah. if we had seen it, and if that were true, sure. then sure. 
There's a weird bit though in Captain Marvel where someone's clearly pressing no. the button. <laughs> and Sam Jackson's just a baby for one scene. And no one mentions it. And then next time, he's just normal Nick Fury again. But just for one scene, he's a baby with an eye patch, and it's so weird. <laughs> but so cute, though. So cute, a little cute baby. Do, 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 do. Um, I think we've answered your question to your satisfaction. <laughs> so having recently listened to the three-day-long podcast spoiler special for uh, Mission Impossible Fallout, uh-huh. thanks, Chris. No worries. I was just wondering if you guys had a choice to do a spoiler special with any director in film, past, present, or even future, uh, who would you all individually choose to do a three-day-long podcast with? Spielberg. Quite clearly, it's Denis Villeneuve for you. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of goes without saying. <laughs> what about David Lynch for June? Would you not like Fuck that? Fuck him. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> Joe for June. Fine. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, uh, Spielberg for, I mean, practically anything. Um, Raiders. I don't know. E.T. E.T. Yeah. E.T.? Yeah. That'd be a good spoiler special. I don't care. <laughs> Look, we're talking, me getting to sit down with yeah. Steven Spielberg and talk about films, I don't care what For three days? About. Yeah, sure. That'd be amazing. I'd, I'd want to move into James Cameron's house and talk about nothing but aliens. <laughs> Absolutely. Because every time I've tried, he, he gets really funny talking about that film, and I've never, never quite been able to pin down why. Every time I've interviewed him, and maybe it's because I'm specifically there to talk about something else and I keep coming back to it. <laughs> and he's just like, for fuck's sake. Uh, but yeah, I, 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 I could talk to him about that film forever because it is, and I think we can all agree, the greatest film ever made. <laughs> um, along those lines, John McTiernan for Die Hard would be fun. I mean, I kind of have. Yeah, so. yeah. this is true. There's five MCU films we have no spoiler specials for. Yeah. And we're going to be doing, we're going to be recording spoiler specials for those five films because they, they preceded the podcast uh, and rolling them out before Avengers Endgame. But I don't think they'll have director interviews, but I'd quite like to... I'd, I'd quite like that to happen. I'd quite like to talk to, yeah. you know, Ken Branagh and Joe Johnston and Joss Whedon and the other Louis one, Leterrier. John Favreau. <laughs> oh yeah, they're, they're the one everybody forgets. Poor old Louis Leterrier. Yeah. Not, uh, I think probably Chris McQuarrie on Mission Seven and Eight, <laughs> because I think we'll be talking for a long time. He's already made whispers of like a week-long podcast, which is. Yeah, he yeah. tweeted us and said we will rename it the Empire Filibuster Podcast. Yeah, which yeah. I thought was quite. Uh, and uh, I don't think he's kidding. So, no. yeah, that's great. I'm very happy yeah, to, to have a week off work. Hiya. Um, I was just going to ask about, speaking of Marvel, the whole Disney-Fox merger mm. and uh, what kind of X-Men film you guys would like to see and dream director of it? Ah, mm. uh, interesting. It's difficult. I'm really excited about bringing the X-Men into the MCU because... Uh, you know, I don't think it's any huge spoiler to say that we're probably going to lose some people. Sorry, Helen. <laughs> he's die. not going to die, uh, okay? Cap's not, he's, he's not going to die gonna at all. He's going to live There's on no a farm. There's no chance that he's going to die. He's going to live on a um, farm. But we are going to need an, an infusion of new blood. And, and the worry is that they could start going quite obscure because Marvel has a huge catalogue. You know, did they start bringing out random squirrel girls and stuff like that? That is not random. She's great. <laughs> or, or do you go and just like shift gear and go full X-Men and absolutely you do that because these characters are amazing you reboot them, reboot them you recast them you know you, you start again with those um, and that would be an in- incredible time for me because my, my core Marvel is that sort of X-Men universe it's, it's mutants you know it's Bishop and it's Havoc and it's Cyclops it's all those people and I've always you know certainly for me the Avengers were always kind of like oh, they're good but, you know, but they're not mutants so this is a whole new world of Marvel fandom for me. A new I'm sort of fantastic excited. place to be. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no one to tell you no or yeah. where to go. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, 
I mean, look, I love, I love the X-Men because they were the first Marvel comics that I really, really, really mm. got into, apart from occasional bits of Spider-Man, bits of um, Avengers, whoever. But my, yeah, you're right, the X-Men were where my heart so was as well. At the same time, I would be okay with a little break of a couple of years um, just to kind of let it settle and, mm -hmm. and then start over. I'm not ready for a new Wolverine, like mentally or emotionally. <laughs> no, no. I have my Wolverine and I'm, I'm not ready to let that go. Um, so I'm just going to need a moment yeah. um, before the they start. The things they could do, like Inferno, House of M, all of that sort of stuff. It's just House like, of it M boggles would be, the mind. Yeah, House of M would be But I know special. what you mean. Like, like to think of, like, to picture that, the last moments of Logan, you know, when she moves the cross, turns it to an X, and then just to think of them recasting him, it's like, no! Oh! Yeah, yeah, it's not okay. I think I, I, well, I don't know about director, though. I'm happy with that. I'm happy with, because um, I don't want them to cross over. I don't know how they're going to deal with Deadpool in the MCU because Ryan Reynolds is Deadpool. He's, he insists upon it. So <laughs> I don't think you can cast anyone else in that role. Um, I really hope they don't. I, don't, I hope there's not some sort of dimensional warp where suddenly you, know, you get Fassbender. I mean, I like, I, I like a lot of the oh, X-Men yeah, yeah, films. Correct. I like this cast. I'm not dissing them in any way. But I, I, don't think, I think it would be weird if suddenly you had Fassbender mm. or McAvoy and, yeah. and not Jennifer Lawrence, obviously, because uh, she's, she's a goner. Um, <laughs> turning up in the X-Men universe. I think the, the Avengers template, tonally, is a really great one to go for. Mm. You look back at the X-Men movies, how they started, and they started with a studio that really was like, what the hell is this comic book nonsense? Oh, oh, you just go over there and do that. I think there are, are things you could do again with the X-Men from scratch. So that'd be cool. Um, director? The Russos a good director. The Russos, good. Russos, Russos. Yeah. I mean, and yeah. they can also handle like large moving casts. <laughs> you know, <laughs> move, many moving laugh. parts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't know. I, 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 I would rather be surprised by a choice of director rather than sort of naming the usual suspects. <laughs> no pun intended. Um, uh, and, and, I, and I hope that we're going to see more risks being taken on new and younger directors uh, with these kind of films as well, because, you know, we need a bit of uh, mixing it up. Josh Trank. Oh, my God, man. <laughs> Give that guy a superhero movie, I say. See yeah. what he can do with it. Uh, right, we have time for maybe two last questions real quick. There's uh, Helen, you choose. Um, well, the guy here in the middle is yeah, just yeah, my eye so well. yeah. yeah. Uh, just to be a bit local, what are personally your favourite films set in Scotland? And uh, you can't say Infinity War, even though it's got that one scene. <laughs> <the PlayStation. laughs> it's so limiting. It's not the real question Scotland, and then ruin anyway. it. Oh. Set uh, in Scotland, not just filmed here. Gregory's Girl is amazing. I'm going to go for yeah. that one. Whiskey uh, Galore, can we say, the original, yeah. obviously, not the remake. Can we say Train Spotting? Are we allowed to say that? Because it's over I the other place. I know, because it's the other place, yeah. You can say train spotting. Okay, thanks then. Uh, <laughs> really like that one. And uh, this is also set in Edinburgh, obviously, but um, Shallow Grave oh, yeah, as well movie. is a yeah. fantastic one. Yeah, Shallow Grave's a good show. I did very much enjoy Mary Queen of Scots as well. Very but, much. Yeah. I very much enjoyed it. <laughs> and can I just say for the record, I've enjoyed every film set in Scotland <laughs> <laughs> over the years. It's very true. In fact, Ooh. more so than films set in Wales. I don't know why that is. Never liked the Welsh. No. Sheepshaggers, a lot of them. Are there any Welsh people here? I think there are. Sheepshaggers, a lot of them. Yep, that's fine. Oh, uh, okay. and, and also um, Wild Rose, which I don't know is like. Oh, yeah. yeah so it's about to come out. It's the Jesse Buckley film about country music. Uh, it was shot here last year. I know somebody here worked on it, and um, it's really good. Yep, it is good, and uh, otherwise every film set in Scotland has gone out of my head. But Jimbo, you uh, like films? Yes, I, I very much enjoyed Brave. <laughs> <laughs> Which 
I believe was the documentary feature that. Uh, yes, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. How to Train Your Dragon, obviously yes, a famous yes, yes, Scottish very, film yes. there. Absolute farce of a man. Um, <laughs> the Isle of Burke, obviously a famous Scottish landmark. Huge, yeah. huge landmark. Uh, we've got time for one last question. Someone has a microphone up there. Yeah, hi. Uh, you've been getting on very well today. I was going to ask, attempted to ask a question about the four star masterpiece that oh, is Molly's oh. game. But. Um, <laughs> I was just going to ask about reviews, when you're writing reviews with films now that are quite big blockbusters like Marvel, DC and Star Wars, whether you love it or hate it, you're going to get a lot of abuse. Mm. Yes. Um, how do you deal with that and are you thinking about that when you're writing, writing the reviews? Um, I, I, I do have a story about this. I was, so I was the one chosen to write the Force Awakens review um, and it was only going to be me who was allowed <laughs> to go see it before writing the review. So there was no, there going to be no chatting it over with colleagues and making sure I was sort of you know, define thankless task. Yeah, it's basically. <laughs> and, the chosen one. and I only had like two hours to write the review and I knew that if, if it was a three or less, I would literally get death threats because that's happened in the past um, for very uh, films that had people excited and we gave three or less, we've had death threats. And if I gave it five, nobody would believe me because certain people <laughs> uh, gave Attack of the Clones five stars and completely, you know. What? No, I've heard that when? people did, apparently. I don't what know an who, idiot. but somebody did. <laughs> who would um, do that? So I, I literally was kind of sitting in the film sort of hoping it would be a four-star film, genuinely. And, and I, I genuinely came out thinking it, it is, and I stand by that. But that, that was really nerve-wracking. So, yeah, so, I, I mean, I think we've had it in the past, like with the Simpsons movie, I remember when that came out, that got three stars. We had 48 hours of nothing but abuse from readers that we didn't like the Simpsons very much. And then they saw it. And the abuse <laughs> just dried up instantly, yeah. you know? And so, like, that would have been the case, I think, if it had been a three-star film. I think it would have been two days of misery and then just yeah. nothing. Because it's not normally people who disagree with you. It's people who tribally hate you even though they haven't seen the film. Yeah. Yeah. And they would just lynch you. This cannot possibly... Because it's not that you've... It's your opinion. that You've ruined the film and destroyed their childhood and done all these various things. Uh, but Dan, uh, Dan Jolin of this parish, reviewed Taken and gave it one star. Uh, <laughs> fucking Dan. And uh, genuinely got a death threat. Like someone left a death threat on his voicemail. And it was. I will find you. It was Liam Neeson. He, um, he, got, he, got, he also got a death threat for a three star review of Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Man's also Chest. Also true. This may say more about Dan than it does about Sid. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny. It's People can be, can be yeah. very. And I had four days of people shouting at me because I said a really mild criticism of Batman v Superman on the, on the online last week. <laughs> four days, solid. Yeah, yeah but you, you do something really interesting. Like I have my Twitter settings on lockdown, so yeah. whenever uh, dickheads rail at me, uh, I generally can't see it, but you engage with them, which is really fascinating yeah. because you, 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 know, you shout them down. Well, sometimes you win. it works. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> you just confer it one heart, one mind at a time. That's the Helen O'Hara ethos. That's it. And that's how you do it. And that's how you take a ball. It's the Chicago way. That's the Chicago way. Um, yeah. Anyway, on but that yeah, Sean you've just Connery got a, bombshell. You've just got to review it anyway and to hell yeah. with it. People have made their minds up beforehand, which I like to do going into a film, actually, because it just saves the time writing the review. So, <laughs> I don't think know. that's something you should necessarily I mean, it's, 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 it worked for Attack of the Clones, uh, you know. <laughs> I, I've been doing it wrong all these years. It's a, it's a bit yeah. of a... Well, 
pull back the curtain there on the, <laughs> on the reviews process for you. Uh, and that is it for this very, very special live episode. Thank you so much to the Glasgow Film Festival for inviting us up here, to Claire Gascoigne, Zoe Flower, Debbie Aitken, Ian Cannon, Christopher Kumar, all the tech staff here at the GFT1 as well. Thanks to Michael Palin for being an incredible guest. And of course, thank you so much to you guys for coming. We could not do these live shows without you. We wouldn't even want to. They would be rubbish. <laughs> even more rubbish than the thing you have just sat through. Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun, where we'll be joined by Ricky Gervais to talk about his new Netflix show, Afterlife, and Nicholas J. Fury himself, Captain Marvel star Samuel L. Jackson as well. I know, I know. Until that auspicious occasion, until we meet again, thank you, Whoop Lady. I like you. You are great. You can come back to every single live show. Until the suspicious occasion, until we meet again, it's goodbye from James Dyer. Bye. No, don't no. do it. Don't do it. No, don't do it. No, expecting me to make some really, really obvious and lame plug for the pilot TV no. podcast out on Monday, no. but I'm not cutting that bit out. Cutting that bit out. Cutting that no, bit don't out. Applaud that. Don't applaud don't that. Applaud. It, it won't make any sense. People will just hear applauding. They'll go, what are you applauding? Because I'll <laughs> cut that bit out. <sighs> anyway, it's goodbye from Helen O'Hara. <laughs> and it's goodbye from me. I'm off to get this tattoo of Brendan Rogers removed from my back. <laughs> it's going to be really, really painful. Thanks for listening. See you guys next time. Bye-bye.